You're listening to Know Better, Do Better, Live Better on the Kempire Radio Network. Welcome to another week of Know Better, Do Better, Live Better here on the Kempire Radio Network. I'm your boy, The Kempire. So excited about this week and what we're going to be talking about. I think it's so important right now to focus on the current events of what's going on in the world, especially with this wellness series. Um, So this week, I spoke with singer and songwriter Mila Jam, uh, and we explored a a variety of different topics beyond just her music career. But I also wanted to speak to someone that is very vocal on the trans experience, about Black Lives Matter, and we talked about all of those different things, along with her music, but... I think it was so important, especially for this wellness series, to deep a little bit deeper into what the trans experience really is, not only in music, but also in the world that we live in. You know, how is dating? How is, um, you know, dealing with this within a black family? Uh, So I was so grateful to Mila for being so transparent and being so insightful on some of her thoughts in regards to her experience. And I think it's so important to just put it out there, and I said this during uh, my conversation with Mila, is that although I'm black and a part of the LG, and she's black and a part of the LGBT plus community, uh, we are speaking about our own experiences. We do not represent the entire community. And I, and I encourage people that aren't a part of the community, if you do have questions, speak to a variety of people. You may speak to one person and hear something completely different. Um, but I love the fact that we can use this platform to have conversations like this with an artist and a person like Mila Jam. So take a listen to our special interview. Uh, and later on, we'll also be sharing some music from Mila as well. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode here on the Kempire Radio Network. I'm so excited because I've been following this next artist music for a few years now. Uh, so I was really excited to have her for a two-part uh, uh, interview here on the Kempire Radio Network, one for the Know Better, Do Better, Live Better series, but also for the Kempire Show every Friday here on the Kempire Radio Network. Please welcome for the very first time, but not the very first time that we played the music here on the, on the, the network, but welcome to the very first time for an interview. Mila Jam, what's going on? Hi, hello, and thank you for having me. <laughs> first of all, uh, you, you know we've played your music here on the Kempire Radio Network before, but this is the yes. first time that we've, we've had an interview. So I'm, there's a lot for us to talk about and catch up on. <laughs> I'm, yeah, we have, to, we have to build and catch up, and I'm excited to be here chatting with you. And thank you for playing my music and continuing to play the music because... It's important to me. Definitely. So as I said to you um, beforehand, I want to first uh, talk about your story. How did this mm-hmm. all begin for you? How did, how did you get into, you know, being a creative person? I don't want to just say a musician because I know you dance, you do a lot of different things. So how did, how did this all begin for you? Um, it's my whole life. I, I started, um, you know, when I was like four. Uh, I, I, was, um, tra- I, I was training and taking dance classes, um, music lessons. Um, I was an actor when I was little. I was like a child actor, actually, and had opportunities to actually go to L.A. and to start pursuing acting full-time as a child actor. 
And the story goes that, you know, my mother raised me. um, She was a single parent. My parents got divorced when I was very young. And just the idea of her as a single mother moving to Los Angeles to sort of just take a whim and uh, take a crack at the the Hollywood business didn't really seem fitting at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it just, we just took a different route, you know? And I grew up in the South uh, primarily with my um, grandmother. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother raised me for a a long while uh, when my mother was recovering from a divorce. And so going back and forth between my mom and my grandmother, you know, I'd always been very active very creative, love to sing, love to dance, always wanted to be in the spotlight. And (laughs) I was in theater camps. I was in, you know, regional theater productions um, since I could remember. It always been my passion. Mm -hmm. And I just tried to figure out the road to becoming, I think, an artist, a musician, a solo artist, because Mm -hmm. we all sort of have these things as entertainers and performers you start doing one thing but you always have like the goal of accomplishing something different maybe within Mm. the same industry but Mm -hmm. like it's kind of weird when we discuss how people are known for one thing like actors who actually sing as well and we kind of bash them when they're like they're an actor they shouldn't be singing (laughs) or they're a singer they shouldn't be acting you know so sometimes that gets a little funky for me because i'm like a lot of people who are in the entertainment industry you know you don't just do one thing you know Mm -hmm. you a lot of people do a lot of different things. Um, but I started out acting and I started out singing, singing in the church choir. Wow. And then I actually didn't start actually training to dance like professionally until like I was in high school. Um, wow. Like I started dancing professionally when I was 15 and I was training, like I was doing moonlight training with my dance teacher, um, Melissa Williams. She was teaching me with the younger kids. So I was helping assist her while learning the basics. So I was mm-hmm. double, like I was multitasking basically mm-hmm. and moonlighting at the same time while going to school. And I just felt so passionate about it that I like, all of my youth was rehearsals. Like wow. I didn't date, I didn't do other things. I was a gymnast. I did do that for a while. Um, wow. <laughs> I thought very that I would be, I didn't really have an interest in sports. I thought for a moment that I could play soccer but it really wasn't for me. <laughs> and, um, and then I played the saxophone for like a, like a year. Um, and I had to choose between chorus or band. And I, mm-hmm. I just wanted, I, would, I wanted to sing. So I have wow. been in the arts my whole life. Can, can I, I find it so interesting because um, you see you grew up in the South. Where in the South did you grow up? Columbus, Georgia. And what was, you know, spe- you know, especially with Georgia being in the news a lot this week. Um, uh, yes. How, how was it how, you know, growing up down south, you know, especially as becoming, you know, from, from you know, transitioning to who you are today? Like, tell me yeah. about that story. Tell me about how, how was that experience? You know, one thing I like about the south, I'll start there, is that I think yeah. it, the family, the fabric of, of family is very important in the south. And I like that, you know, raising children in the South, it can be really good to raise children with, you know, the ability to be around their family, to be around nature, to be around like, you know, it's just, it's not as fast paced as like being in New York or a major city, so to speak. So that aspect of it was kind of cool. 
Um, but it is the South, um, very close-minded. Um, being a creative, artistic kid, I always felt different, ostracized. I always felt I was always picked on. But it was the one thing, at least, and I think this is a little bit of has to do with colorism and being black. It's like when we look at black people, we look at we look at ourselves as like these things. We're athletes, we're musicians, we're entertainers. And so those are sometimes our a way to escape being treated or mistreated a certain way. So for me, it was about being are, you know, oh, that's the kid who can sing. That's the kid who can dance. And that was my safety net. That was my way of being validated by people's opinions of me because they didn't approve of my, you know, uh, the way that I acted or the way I carried myself or my identity. So, you know, when I'm being picked on and called names, at the end of the day, was I like, at least, oh, at least they can do that or they're good at something, <laughs> essentially. And so it was tough. I just knew that I would never stay there. That was basically mm. the bottom line is you don't get to pick where you're raised. You don't mm. get to choose that. So I just knew that like whenever I'm able to free myself from what felt like the shackles of this like really constrained way of thinking, I'm going to do it. And I mm. immediately when I knew that I could leave, you know, when I graduated high school, I was like, I'm going to New York oh, and wow. I'm going to start 18, my life. You're out. And at 18, I was out. <laughs> Tell me, tell me, tell me about. Where did, okay, so you left, you left Georgia at eighteen. Tell mm-hmm. me about that experience of coming to New York. So the school that I came to be in New York um, is a theater uh, academy uh, conservatory that allowed me to live here in the city and experience the city, mm-hmm. as well as learn and hone more of my craft um, mm-hmm. in, in musical theater which is what I went to school for and what I went to study for. And so it was important for me to take the dive as soon as possible because I, would, I, I feel like my life has literally been running against the clock because <laughs> there's so much time, I think, as first of all, as Black people, I feel like time is rarely on our side because we're mm. constantly having to make up for lost time because we're not afforded certain things. So we're having to put out more energy just to be able to accomplish some of the most basic things. And I'm like, as you know, an artist, well, like I wasn't born into money. I wasn't born into the opportunity to be on like a hit show or, or, or have all of these things. So I've been chasing them. And I was like, I needed to move to New York so that I could advance myself. And I wasn't really scared. I, I, um, I moved, you know, shortly after 9-11 happened wow. and it was... You know, kind of like, why would you move there when that happened? That was a whole nother hurdle. And I did it because I was like, I'm feeling unstoppable. Like I just, Mm. you know, my life is so important to me. I'm not going to let all of these other things get in the way. And was I scared? Mm, Yeah, I was scared, but I was much more passionate than I was scared about following my dreams. Mia, I'm not sure how much, how willing you are to talk about this, but can you tell us about when you decided to transition? Yeah, so uh, I always knew, I always felt like I was one of the girls. All of my friends growing up when I was young were women, were girls. Um, My connection to most men around me in school or whatever, I never felt like I understood their point of view. I always Mm -hmm. felt like I was perpetrating in their experience 
especially like mm. when I was in shows and I'm in dressing rooms with the, you know, the male group of actors, I'm in the corner, like covering myself, feeling invade, invaded. And I felt like I was just not in the right space. Mm. Um, I endured it because when you're young, you just kind of like, you listen to people and you let them dictate your life and tell you what to do, where to go, how to act. So you do what you have to do to get by. Um, but you hold on to that feeling and that emotion. So I always knew what it felt like. I didn't know how to describe it. I didn't have the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And the vocabulary came way later when, you know, maybe end of high school, uh, after I had come out identifying as gay, because that's just what it was. It was like, you're born this way and you like this. Well, that's gay. And, you know, even <laughs> in the 90s, it's like, you're dealing with the binary. It's like, mm. you're either this or that. You're, you're gay or you're straight. You're black or you're white. Like, it wasn't much conversation about the intersectionality, the nuances of being all these different things. So um, I read a lot in high school. Um, I just kind of embraced being different and unique. I was always very androgynous kind of growing up. Mm. And so I found out, like, when I started touring... Um, on the road after leaving my hometown, you know, I started to see trans women. Um, aside from seeing trans women on talk shows, which was always just a really, you know, negative highlight, like Maury mm-hmm. Povich and mm-hmm. Jerry Springer um, and Ricky Lake. It was like, I couldn't connect to the, um, what's the word? I couldn't connect to the, the circus of it. Mm. I was, you know, even though this is, and this is how important it is for us to see ourselves reflected, you know, in many different ways, you know, how important it is to see yourself maybe as a black man successful, you know, as a black man, you know, loving the earth or doing different things. So I just couldn't accept the circus of it. And I just was like, I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. But what helped me realize who I was was when I finally saw some trans women in the flesh who were like multidimensional people, not only beautiful, but very well-spoken, very intelligent, like witty, all of the things that we look at when we see Hollywood actors and stars or like, you know, we, we idolize. It's like, Oh, I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And so I finally met like trans women touring on the road and then coming to New York I was like, oh, it just clicked. I was like, oh, it's possible. Like to be a woman, to be fully realized and to actually be someone amazing and have a life. And then what does that look like? Where do you start? Like, how do you start that process? Mm -hmm. Um, And I always say in interviews, my best friend, Laverne Cox, actually was the person that, you know, I, she gave me the tools. She was like, you can go here. You can do this. These are the doctors or people that you can talk to. This is the clinic you can start, you know, learning about um, therapy, all of these things. And it was like, wow, okay. And so, I mean, the only thing I wish is I could have, you know, started my transition earlier. However, I do think things happen for a reason. So I don't regret, you know, starting when I did start because I know that my life experience up to that point helped prepare me for how empowering and how powerful it would be to step into it. Because it's not something that, like, I don't take transitioning lightly. 
And I know that there are more people who are learning about their transness, but I, but you know, it's one of those things that's like, you are shifting your life. You're completely shifting a lot. (laughs) And what was, what was your family's response to this decision that you made? Okay. So part of me moving to was like my way of, this is where I'm like, I think we all do this. You go away. If you do, if you leave, you go away and you're like, I'm now I'm going to start my life. And I'm going to learn about what I want my life to be like. And I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm going to be with some people I shouldn't be with. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then I'm going to come together and figure it out. And that's the way I think. It's like, I want to figure out as much as I can about myself before presenting it or going to other people. And I started my transition actually before like telling my family. And it wasn't until maybe like a year into it where like things were starting to change, where I had to go back home for a visit and say things like, listen, you know, this is who I am. I'm, you know, I'm transitioning and I know I'm a woman and you're laughing now and you don't get it now, but I have to do this for me. And they did not understand. They couldn't really place it. Um, Could they understand when you, when you had, had identified as a a gay man, uh, could they understand that or were they, they didn't understand that either? I think they understood that more. Yes. And I still (laughs) to this day believe that there are more people who understand or accept what it kind of means to be gay than mm-hmm. they do because most people don't know a trans person. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like most people don't have a direct connection. I call it the Ellen effect. You know, Ellen came on TV and she was a lesbian and all of a sudden everyone was like, oh, that's what it is. And that exists. Okay, there's a reference point. You know, um, obviously now people can refer to Laverne Cox and and have these, these figures in, in media to say this is someone that represents how I see myself. Um, I think it was kind of like a moment of they had, we had already had a discussion and they thought that's where it was and that's, that was it and that we were done. So the idea of like, wait a minute, no, let's, 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 let's backtrack and like, like let, me re- let me rewind and talk to you about what's really happening. And then adding this new information to the conversation, it just kind of goes over their heads and they just don't understand. And I spoke to my mom we had a long car ride. We did like a, a, a road trip. I broke it down for her. And her response was, as supportive as she is, her response was, was primarily, why can't you just perform and be as you be, you know, like put it on and take it off kind of thing. Mm. And I said, I, I get the sentiment, but that's not the truth. The truth is, is like, when I go to sleep and I wake up, I'm Mila. Like, 24 seven it doesn't it's not it's not about hair it's not about a dress it's not about heels it's not about those are things that are accessories that you know color the situation but like at the end of the day my core and my person and my soul is Mila Mm -hmm. and it just took her a few more after that conversation maybe a few more years I always say that I think that time heals the -hmm. things that we just don't know how to understand And she came around because she started to understand how I was able to create and live and and thrive and survive and and how important it was for me to have a chosen family who supported me because that supports your argument and your, your, um, your need to claim your life and your authenticity. Mm -hmm. And so she started, she just started to get it. She started to get it and go, And that made her change all of her thoughts about what people say 
to her about her child. And I think it's a parent's job to listen to the child and use their own processing, you know, alongside what they what they want for their child, but not to drown that out by like mm. the church or your friends or what other people think. And I think that's the brilliant thing my mother was able to do is she was able to think for herself and listen to me and then kind of roll into like, okay, I'm starting to see, I get it. Okay, now I get it more and more. I think it's interesting because, you know, especially, you know, as we talk about Black Lives Matter um, in the last few weeks, the last couple of years, um, I know it seems brand new to a lot of companies, but um, Black people have been here a long time. Um, but especially as a Black family and your mother accepting you as trans, as a transgender woman, um, I have a couple of questions. <laughs> the first one is, you know, one of the things that, that I've been examining, especially for Pride Month, is the LGBT, the T part. Have you felt a part of the LGBT, you know, et cetera, et cetera, community? Uh, yes and no. I mean, let me just tell you this. Trans women make space for themselves, ourselves. We make mm -hmm. our own space. And we have to, because I think like Black women in general, in, in, in America at least, there's not a lot of people making space for us, cis mm -hmm. or trans. Mm -hmm. So it's very important for any woman to hold her own and to find her own space and to, to keep that for herself. Um, so, you know, it is nice to be um, included or to be, you know, shown uh, that you matter and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, there's so much of that work that we have to just do for ourselves that it's like when nobody cares about us, we still have to go to bed with ourselves. Mm. And the power of loving yourself as a black trans woman is so fierce. Mm. Like, I don't understand how people can't see that. Like, mm. they would much rather mock us or kill us to prove a point that's really stupid and doesn't really exist and is a whole like illusion in the narrative that I don't subscribe to. But that, like, how much it takes to just be able to stand in your beauty, your truth, your power as a Black woman, as a Black trans woman, without anyone else's, you know, a grace or opinion. I think it's interesting that, and I think, and even for my own ignorance, it wasn't until maybe the last few years that I even remembered or understood that this movement of the, you know, LGBT, you know, movement was began with a black and a Hispanic woman. Black trans woman, yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't- She's I on think, my shirt. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> Marsha. <laughs> yes, Marsha. <laughs> but you know what? I, I think people don't know, and I think it's so important, especially when we're having conversations like this, to remind people that this movement uh, began with a black trans woman and right. a Hispanic trans woman. Right. Um, but you have to remember when we're talking about this, and I think it's great that we are not, we're having more conversations about this. Yeah. But we have to really look at the infrastructure of what it means to not only be black in this country, but what it means to be different and black in this country and to be even further othered because so much of our blackness has rested on the back of like this doctrination, like this, this doctrine of like, this is what God is. This is what you are supposed to know about it and how you're supposed to, you know, present and the protocol and the, the guise of religion and who we answer to and our structure, the social structure of like the church 
and mm-hmm. our communion in the church. It's like the beauty of like, let's just say the beauty of the black church is congregating the togetherness. Mm-hmm. I'm here for that. That is the beauty of it to me. But then the rhetoric that kind of comes behind why you're gathering, it just totally omits the re- the lived experience of our black brothers and sisters that are not cis heteronormative, that are different, that are trans. We all know this in black churches across America. There's tons of LGBTQ queer people in the black mm-hmm. church mm-hmm. that are constantly having to be silenced, having to act a certain way, having to be hidden, having to be underneath, having... I mean, I could go on and on and on about it. I refuse mm-hmm. to be that person. I lived through it. Mm-hmm. And my relationship with religion and all that stuff sh- shifted dramatically because of the way I was treated. And it didn't make sense. It didn't match up. And I'm like, how do we match this up with allowing our queer brothers and sisters to be to be seen and be supportive? Um, yeah. How, 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 you know, especially this week, and I, and I think it's important, especially when we speak to the Black community in regards to... Black Lives Matter, and, I, and I've noticed a lot more people, including myself, that are saying, okay, that's important, but just as important, Black trans lives matter, because that is a horrific and persistent issue of Black trans women being murdered. You know, it feels like to me when... I'm, 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 I like sometimes I'm really great at analogies and sometimes I'm not. And I'm just going for this. <laughs> when you win a prize and, you know, you are used to getting, it's like, it's like getting a happy meal and you know, you win a toy. Like there's a little toy prize in it. And you're like, Oh, I got a little toy. It's like having the inclusive, like including transness and black transness in this, in these conversations right now. And people really like hearing people who would never say it, say it. It's a prize that's bigger than a toy. It's a prize that's like, you're getting, you know, this free meal for, for the rest of your life. It is encouraging and it's, it's, it's exciting, but like, it also comes with baggage. It comes with the fear that like, how many of you really believe this? How many of you are really, really, really going to stick to this and, and, and use this? And, and I know it's convenient and it's cute and it's trendy to say Black trans lives matter. I mean, mm. saying the word trans has is been super difficult for lots of people. You know, having the vocabulary around what it means to be trans, people saying transgendered, which is not the way you the word. It's just like, okay, we're all trying and I'm here for that try. Also, how do we stay persistent? How do we stay it is it's it's a diet. It's a diet. You have to continue to practice it. It doesn't just fix itself and go away. Mm-hmm. And then what's even more important is our partners, trans amorous partners, people that are into trans people that don't know they're into trans people and end up finding out that they are. Are you able to make space for us and talk about us? Because mm-hmm. we have been the secret. We have been the secret for since the beginning of time. We're still the secret. We will continue to be the secret in so many respects but it really makes me feel like I want to see that change. Like, how do we change that? And I think it's an interesting point that you bring up in regards to um, relationships. What what has dating been, been like for you? It's been a circus. Um, <laughs> it's been all kinds of things. I, w- I would say 
there's different angles I could go into, but one angle I want to present is before the tipping point, before awareness and, and people seeing trans people on TV and ads or whatever, there was a little bit of a prouder expression from men, people that are not trans that actually like us and that date us because it wasn't talked about and you didn't have people scrutinizing what or who you were with. And so let's just say if you're a trans woman that doesn't look trans or it's passable, like, you know, some people say, I, you know, could date a guy and it just would not be talked about. Like we would have those intimate conversations, but it wouldn't be talked about to like their friends and their family and no one would really know. And guys are so good, speaking about straight cis men, are so good about being like, I don't like people in my business anyway. I don't want people to know what I do anyway. There's such, that's such a narrative in mm-hmm. black, I mean, in tra- uh, cis men's experiences mm-hmm. that you just kind of accept that. And you're just happy that someone's like trying to show up for you. And you're happy mm-hmm. that maybe someone took you to dinner and someone you know, like your body and all that stuff. Now that people know and can see you and there's a conversation around it, I think it's scared men even more. It's made them even more distant and more likely to not want to associate because now it means something because people have something to reference it to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that makes it even more difficult. You really have to be secure. Like a man has to really be secure to be able to say, I not only date trans women or I date women whether they're trans or not. And people in my family and in my life know that. And it is what it is. I mean, and I don't say this to say that it doesn't come with backlash, but like, imagine the backlash we've had to deal with just to be ourselves. So mm-hmm. don't come preaching to us about how, you know, it's just really tough to tell my dad. It's just really tough to tell my mom and like how they would feel about it. We know, boo, we've done that. We did that. <laughs> We're doing that. Sorry, it gets me worked up. <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> Because And first of all, I, I want to say, because, you know, just like myself as a black person, I can't speak for all black people and you can't speak for all right. trans people. We're not a monolith and we know all are not all the same. Exactly. You know, so this is this is your experience. And I thought it was important, though, um, because we are people da- dating is the same in a lot of different ways amongst all of us, <laughs> you know. Um, but but then let me add this to the conversation. You know, I meet guys everywhere online. I mean, I feel like dating online has been is good for trans women because we can disclose and we can be, you know, have a level of safety and say what we need to say when we need to say it. I still believe that a trans woman should be able to say it when she needs to and wants to. Mm-hmm. I don't like this idea that we owe it to you or have to tell you because I think that narrative should shift based on like mm-hmm. every man needs to know that it's possible you might meet a trans woman and might be into her and you might like her. We need to stop having these conversations that like we don't exist and that you would never be into us. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think that a lot of guys, you know, just want to enjoy and, 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 you know, if they like you, they like you, but like we're telling our white friends right now during black lives matter movement, you got to do some hard shit. You got to have some hard conversations if you Mm want to reap some benefits. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see some things, you know, move in your favor, I mean, you have to do a little bit of work. So there are guys out there, they're very rare, but some guys are open to and open-minded enough and have done some work on themselves, are continuing to do work. Um, there are guys out there who are just terrified. They just don't know what to do. And I can tell that they they wish that they could. 
mm-hmm. you know, be more, I guess, I guess, safe, safer, knowing that they are open to dating trans women. And um, I've just learned to just sort of weed out what I don't need to deal with. And I think that's every individual trans woman's job is to figure out how much are you willing to put up with? I've put up with a lot. <laughs> what are you not willing to put up with now? Uh, well, at this point, I'm not willing to put up with this, you know, the secretive thing, the, you know, the, the I like you, but I don't want anyone to know thing, um, the download thing. Um, a lot of this comes from being really centered and happy with my life and just where I'm going and I'm busy and I have things that I'm doing and things that I'm working on and accomplishing and that I'm creating a legacy. And there are a lot of fuck boys and there are a lot of guys who don't know what they want and don't want. And that was my other point. A lot of men don't even know if they want relationships and don't want relationships. So right there, it's a, this is a conversation that me and my sisters that are not trans can have all day, every day. Mm-hmm. It's trying to find men who want relationships and are actually open to building something with you. So many of them don't, it doesn't matter if you're trans or not because they don't want anything anyway. Mm. What, is, what is something, speaking of the Mila that was back in Georgia. What is something now that you know that you would have told her back then? Mm, It doesn't have to be one thing either. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know if this really answers the question, but I'll say this. What fascinates me is being in a moment and knowing that you can smell it, touch it, taste it, and it's still not there yet, and that you really, really want it. And then what it feels like to appreciate it when you actually do get to experience it. And so Mm -hmm. what I would tell her is that you have the ability, it will happen and it can happen. It will, you know, the time frame is whatever, because it can be a very long time, but you will get there. And what you're doing is important for not only yourself, but other people. It's hard to know that when you're not seeing yourself represented, when you just have to feel that on your own. And I always say, like, I have a Mila Jam growing up and I wish that I had something like that. I don't know how many people may look up to me if that's their business, if they want to or not. But, like, it is nice to see people that we can look up to that are inspiring. I think, you know, we want to be inspired. This is a Kempire Radio Network exclusive. Oh,
will be available in our description box. Thank you to Mila Jam for part one of our really in-depth conversation. Um, I'm just so happy that we're able to have these types of conversations here on the Kempire Radio Network, specifically our wellness conversations um, here on Know Better, Do Better, Live Better. Because like Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you'll do better. And I believe you will end up living better. Don't forget to subscribe to the Kempai Radio uh, Network podcast. All of that information will be available in our description box. Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Kempire Radio and my personal Instagram, The Kempire. And you know, I like to end every episode with a Kempisms. I forgot to do it last week, but if you need a daily dose of a Kempism or inspiration, make sure you're following us at Kempisms on Instagram. So this week I wanted to um, just share just something that came up on one of my feeds. It's an, it's an old Kempism uh, that I had written, but I, I just shared it uh, on the uh, Kempism IG. And it says, there's no freedom like accomplishing mess <laughs> on your own be your own hero thank you guys so much for tuning in for another week of no better do better live better here on the Kempire radio network <laughs>